What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Today on What Got You There Sean talks with JC Glick JC is a partner at Kenning Associates, a top consulting firm specializing in leadership development, organizational culture, and building resiliency in professionals. JC served as an infantry officer for 20 years, primarily serving in Ranger and Special Operations Mission units. He has multiple deployments in support of operations worldwide with 11 combat tours. As a result, he was selected to direct the Army schools on leadership development, resiliency, and fitness. He has led organizations as large as 1,500 soldiers and advised Fortune 500 companies with over 200,000 employees and over $62 billion in revenue, as well as professional sports teams and athletes. He holds a master's degree from the Naval War College and was a senior fellow in the Service Chiefs Fellowship at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. He has earned three bronze stars, a Joint Commendation Medal, and the Order of St. Maurice, and selected as a Liberty Fellow, class of 2016, a part of the Aspen Institute and the Aspen Global Leadership Network. JC, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Doing great, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, of course. No, this is an honor to have you, and obviously, thank you for your service. But you are someone who can teach the listeners of this show so much, so I want to dive right into it. But how do you start your day? I know today you were planes, trains, and automobiles, but what's a typical day look like for JC? Um, you know, so uh, it's always different. I'll tell you what I'd like it to be for the most part. What what my favorite, you know, uh, looks like is uh, I get up. Uh, when um, my kids go to school um, and get to see them off to school, um, do uh, a little work until about mid-morning. Uh, I, I really I've kind of enjoyed writing recently. Um, so whether that's just some ideas for, for future work or, um, or an article or I'm working on, um, I'm working on another three books right now that I'd like to put out. Um, and then, uh, by mid morning, I'm ready to go to the gym. I go to the gym, uh, you know, work out, get, uh, get some lunch, um, try to come back. And usually the afternoons when I do my calls, uh, with clients or I do client visits and then, um, and then try to be back, you know, so that, uh, I'm there when I'm not traveling. Um, I'm there when my kids come home. We can talk about the day we can, you know, before they go and do their homework. And then, you know, I got to admit my app, my evenings are kind of lazy. I try to read. Um, I have a really, I I have a unique and really weird habit. I try to read like four or five books at one time uh, because I want to see how they relate to each other. Hmm. Uh, um, And uh, then I, I, I go to bed. I'm, you know, at 46 years old, I'm kind of, I'm feeling uh, I get tired pretty quick. So, uh, you know, usually by 930, I'm in bed. No, I got you. It sounds like you've set your day up for success um, in terms of what works best for you. And you mentioned your five-book rotation. What are those books you have right now in your rotation? Let's see. Uh, so, I, like as you were saying, I just got off an airplane, and I try not to bring them all on the airplane with me. <laughs> um, but what I, what I really Brought on the airplane with me was uh, Super Brain um, by Deepak Chopra. Yep. And uh, Randolph Tanzi. And Surfing with Sart uh, by Aaron James. That was what was on the plane with me. Uh, additionally, I'm reading uh, Guilty by uh, Harold Rothwack. He was, he was a judge in New York. Uh, science and the Indian tradition when Einstein met Tagore and the I Ching, which is a Taoist kind of uh, philosophy uh, book. How'd you develop that practice of kind of that five book rotation and trying to pull something from all of them and see how they uh, interrelate? Um, you know, I, I think I started it when I was in battalion command. So it's not a really, it's, it's, you know, maybe it's maybe six or seven years old since I started doing this. And what I found was I could never sit down and finish a book. So I'd, I'd either leave it at work or I'd leave it and I'd have another book with me. So I'd start looking at it. And then all of a sudden I find, oh, you know, this is like the other thing I was reading. Hmm. 
And I, I could, those linkages and it would build on some other ideas that I had for either training or leadership or, you know, how do we get people to, you know, uh, take the culture of the army seriously. And it just, I don't know, it just started happening. So you mentioned your time in the battalion command. Let's go back. I want to hear your backstory. Where did it all start? Who is JC Glick? <laughs> yeah. Um, not a super exciting story. Um, I was, um, I was not uh, a particularly talented student as uh, as a young man, um, nor was as as a young young person was I a particularly talented athlete. Um, eventually, as as I got older in high school, um, I, I started to find that athletics were certainly important to me. While our school still was not, um, and uh, I think it was probably. In high school, that I started to realize that that athletics or sports, uh, it was really important to to who I was, being in shape, being you know fit, and competing. Um, it was short lived because at 18, um, my parents were divorced, and I lived with my mom. And uh, at 18, I found myself kind of out on my own. Um, and the truth was, I was actually homeless for 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 a small period of time. Um, but you know, lived on the beach for a little while. Um, and, uh, by this time, and I lived all over, but at this time I was on, uh, Cape Cod, uh, Massachusetts and, uh, got a job in a clothing store and lied about my age to get a job as a bouncer in a bar. Um, traveled all the way from Cape Cod to Virginia doing those kind of jobs and not being very successful. Um, and uh, reunited with my dad. I had decided that in, uh, this was right around, uh, the, the first Gulf war desert storm. And I, I was just so sick and tired of, of, a, a very unfulfilling and, and, uh, you know, kind of a, a loser life. I said, uh, all right, I'm going to join the Marine Corps and go fight in this war that's coming up. So I had been estranged from my father. So I called him up and said, Hey, I just want you to know, I'm going to join the Marine Corps and this is what I'm going to do. He said, uh, well, hey, why don't, you, why don't you come up to where he was living in Rhode Island? He goes, why don't you come up to Rhode Island and, and see me before you do that? And so I took, uh, he sent me money for a train ride. Um, and coming back to, to him and, and my stepmom, uh, who, I, who I now call my mother. So if I refer to my mom, it's, it's her that I'm talking about. Um, I, uh, I just, you know, it was, I was really nervous about it and they just accepted me and and kind of kind of took me in and we got caught up and it was really it was very natural it felt really good uh after that um i said well i'm still going to join and so um my dad said all right well if you if you come if you go to the if you go to the recruiter and you leave there with anything other than a contract we're going to talk about your options um I went in and I left with an application for the Naval Academy, which I was wholly unqualified for. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that my dad talked to the recruiter and kind of explained that we hadn't we hadn't been together for a while. So, um, I uh, they gave me my dad said, "Hey, you can have a place to stay, but you got to pay for school on your own." So uh, I, I got into the University of Rhode Island. Um, my uh, I worked as a as a bouncer in two bars and as a ski instructor and uh, in a ski shop. Worked my butt off for two years. Decided uh, I did very very well because I knew what it was like when you didn't do well in school. Um, and uh, was able to get a scholarship, uh, so I get to play sports. Uh, you know, get a scholarship. And, 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 and do pretty well. I got a ROTC scholarship because I decided that I wanted to pay back the opportunity that I had because very few people get to come back from pretty much being homeless to, you know, going to a university and, and doing well and, and kind of living the way they want to. So I decided to serve um, and uh, did that through ROTC. And on the 21st of May, 1995, I was commissioned uh, as a second lieutenant in the infantry regular army. Um, you know, to make the rest of the story kind of shorter, uh, first assignment was with the 82nd, um, 
deployed to Haiti in 97. That was a, that was a huge um, learning experience for me as a leader and probably the, the first insight that I had to maybe the army wasn't doing it quite right and kind of started leading me or, well, definitely uh, was reflected in, uh, in the book that I wrote. Um, went to third ranger battalion as a platoon leader, uh, spent, uh, from like 90, the end of 97 to 2000, um, at the, at third battalion was lucky enough to go serve, uh, and build the striker brigade, uh, the first striker brigade out in, um, Fort Lewis, Washington. So I commanded there after that, I went back to the Rangers, uh, both as the, as, as an operations air officer. And then, uh, as a commander in first ranger battalion, uh, went to grad school at the Naval war college back to Rhode Island. Um, after that year, I went to selection and went to the asymmetric warfare group, spent almost seven years there, uh, selected for battalion command for training, um, went and was a deputy commander for a year, then commanded um, for 26 months of a basic training battalion. Uh, after that, I was selected to lead the Army School for Resiliency, the Army's Fitness School, and the Army's Leadership School uh, on Fort Jackson, and then retired uh, and been doing uh, leadership consulting um, for two years now, a little over two years. Um, mainly with athletic teams, um, though I've worked with both Xbox um, and some other, you know, uh, just got done uh, talking at, at Stanley Black & Decker. So I've done some corporate stuff, but um, I've, I've really kind of focused on, on working with athletes. So uh, started with uh, the NFL, uh, then worked with the Denver Broncos. Now working with uh, the Carolina Panthers, the Charlotte Hornets, um, Johns Hopkins Lacrosse. Worked with uh, Washington Lee University, uh, their athletic department. Uh, so just kind of doing a bunch of different stuff. And last May, um, I uh, released my first book uh, called "Light in the Darkness: uh, Leadership Development for the Unknown." So that's that's kind of everything, and and hopefully what was not too long. Uh, an explanation. No, it's great hearing that. And obviously we, uh, we did your, your intro and bio, uh, at the start of the show. So for, I'm sure the listeners are dying to know, how do you go from someone who's basically homeless and unmotivated to having one of the most impressive resumes I've ever seen? How does that happen? What's the mind shift that goes on during that time? I think you have to make a, a deliberate decision to not be the person that you don't want to be and to be the person and to strive to be the person that you do want to be. And, and I know that sounds really simplistic, but, but I truly believe that that's the idea is, you know, first of all, it, it certainly, I don't, I never could have done it on my own. There were so many supporting, I mean, I, I couldn't have done it first, you know, obviously my dad and my mom who, who gave me that opportunity because we can have all the desire in the world, but without being uh, offered the opportunity, you, you're not going to accomplish anything. Um, so I look at, you know, my parents, um, heck, even the ROTC who, you know, commander at the time who offered me the, the scholarship and, and just being able to understand that all those opportunities were gifts and I had to do something with them. Was that a gradual shift? Uh, um, no, it was a pretty, it was a pretty stark shift. I really didn't like who I was. I really didn't like the way my life was. And I recognized when my dad took me in and, and I seriously, I hadn't talked to him for a very long time. And, and, he, and, he, and he showed me kind of the love that, that unconditional love that you only have for a child uh, and maybe, you know, your, your soulmate. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was very clear to me, hey, I can't be that guy anymore. I have to be a different guy. Um, and so I, you know, I, I, I was dedicated to making sure that I was the kind of guy that deserved the opportunities that he got and took advantage of them. What was your training like in the Rangers? Oh, wow. So it was really different both times. Um, both times it was really rigorous, not just before the war, but because I was a lieutenant and I was still learning about being a Ranger. Uh, when I was a platoon leader, it, it, was, it was very focused on 
learning what right looked like for the Ranger Regiment, um, how we did things the right way, um, taking the, you know, it wasn't a choice between, you know, the hard right over the easy wrong. There was only one path. There weren't two. There wasn't a choice. You just <laughs> you just did it that the Ranger way. Um, when I went back the second time and commanded there, uh, I'll tell you the difference was was amazing because now it wasn't about learning the ranger way it was about learning what right could be and innovating and coming up with new ways to do things uh new solution you know made sense in that way it wasn't just hey do it the hard way because that's the ranger way it was what works and whatever works is what we're going to do um and that was i think it was good for me because that's kind of i gotta be honest with you, i've never really liked being told what to do um, and so it, it, it fit at that time in my life because I was really ready to, to make impact and to do things differently and to really challenge the system. And sometimes I had to be challenged by the system to do that and tell a story, uh, in the book, um, about, you know, a ranger company commander doing a live fire exercise, uh, in Afghanistan to, to train for a target. And the commander's saying, yeah, that would have been good for 99. Uh, well, obviously, you know, I don't say it in the book, but me, uh, and that was uh, the regimental commander at the time was a guy named Craig Nixon. And it just, I, I realized, I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm the, the reins are off. I'm allowed to figure out what, what's different because I was doing it the way I'd always been taught to do it in the regiment. And now being able to be, t- you know, be empowered by a leader to say, yeah, we got to be better. It was great. And it was, it was perfect for, for the way I like to think. What was the most challenging part of uh, your training with the Rangers? Um, so really personally, I'll tell you, it was uh, keeping up with my guys. I mean, you know, you can be in the 82nd or, or in the conventional force and, uh, you know, be physically fit and be pretty smart and, uh, and do really, really well. And you're probably in the top, you know, third, maybe, maybe even less than, uh, in the Rangers, it's everybody's like that, everybody. So from your newest private to, you know, your Sergeant major, who's been there for 20 years. And so I think for me, it was, it was still, it was not only trying to be innovative and come up with new ideas while simultaneously, you know, being able to really you know, match, meet these guys and, and be not the leader that they needed, but the, but the ranger that I'm expected to be because the standard is the same, whether you're a commander or whether you're private. So, you know, to balance that is, uh, it becomes difficult, um, and, and certainly very humbling and to, to try to make sure that you're, that the men trusted that, you were a ranger first and an officer second. Um, that that was always, you know, I, I it was challenging, but I always enjoyed it. I always thought it was the right mentality. You mentioned being a good leader. How do you transition then to being uh, a leadership development training coach? How does that happen? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I'll tell you, I don't think I'm a coach. I, I, I try not to use that word. I have to sometimes because that's what everybody understands. But you know, I talk about, and I have a whole thing where I talk about leading versus coaching. And I'll tell you, the thing about coaches is coaches give you uh, information that makes you better, right? So they're, they're going to they're gonna train you. They're going to teach you. Um, but at the end, keep in mind, the coach has the answers that he instills upon you. Uh, and I don't like that because um, the way it worked for me doesn't mean it's going to work that way for anybody else. So what I'd rather do is ask really good questions and let an individual create an answer that works for them because no one's going to lead like I did and no one should lead like I did and no one should do things exactly the way John Maxwell says because John Maxwell's experience is in leading churches. My experience is leading in the Rangers. Um, you know, you you can look at all these different, you know, uh, experts at, at leadership and what we all have to understand is we're we're kind of stuck in what what we did so what worked for me 
may not work for somebody else. So it's really important for me that I, I ask questions and try to get individuals to create their own solutions uh, with me facilitating. So I kind of see myself as an advisor, uh, less than a coach. And when you think of that, then it's actually kind of easy for, for the transition because as a, as a senior leader, it wasn't about telling people what to do. It was helping. It was, it was supporting people to find their best selves. That's, that's what leaders do, right? They, they inspire action, um, and get the best out of their people. And I did that by, you know, letting people solve their own problems, but facilitating them and resourcing them the right way. Well, it's kind of what I do as a, as a leadership advisor, right? Because if you think about it, you know, when I work with someone like Ron Rivera, that guy does not need me. That, that guy is, a, is an amazing leader, an amazing coach, you know, one of the top 10 coaches in the NFL. I mean, he gets it. What he needs is a sounding board. What he needs is another guy who sometimes thinks differently and has a different background than he does, who can talk to him about, hey, what do you think about this? And ask sometimes the hard questions, but without an idea of what the what the answer should be, I think in a lot of leadership coaching, we ask a question with an idea of what the answer should be, as opposed to what that person's answer is. So, if you're working with a team or an organization, what are some of those questions you might be asking them? You know, a lot of them have to do with why. You know, so so one of the things I ask players uh, is, so how did you make your team better today? You know, and it's funny because initially I would get answers like, I brought my energy. You know, I gave 100% in practice. And my response to that is, you get paid a lot of money to do that. That's kind of your job. I mean, nobody's going to, nobody pays you, you know, millions of dollars to not bring all your energy. <laughs> my, my thought was, is less about how do you make yourself better and how are you making the team better? And so the best answer I got was from a defensive end once who said, you know, I'm, they're having me play three technique today. That's not where I play, but that's what the team needs today. That is a good answer. That has guys thinking about what are they doing to make the team better? What are they doing to earn their right to be on the team? You, you belong on the team because you get drafted and, 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 and you're trusted because you get to wear whatever the team name is on, on the front of your shirt. But now the question becomes, okay, so how do you, how do you earn your right to stay there? Because it shouldn't just be by doing your job. That's, that's the championship teams don't just do, do their job. It's one of the problems I have with the idea of, hey, do your job. Well, that, that's a little too simplistic. That means all I have to do is worry about me. And if I worry about me, everything else will come together. But I have to really understand what's the outcome need to be and what are the outcomes we're trying to do and how do I help somebody else get better uh, and how are they helping me get better? So so I talk a lot about that with with players, with coaches. It's usually, you know, hey, why why do we look at it this way and why don't we look at it this way? And, and it's just to to get them to think of, you know, who should be doing film in the in the team room? Um, who should be who should be briefing you know, next week's game plans, you know, should it be the coach? And there's that, that balance between coaching and leading. And I think, again, it's, it's, it's coaches give answers leaders, you know, they, they facilitate others giving answers. They draw answers out of others. With black Friday at the end of this week, our friends at four Sigmatic have some unbelievable deals for you. From Friday, November 24th to Tuesday, November 28th, they're offering huge discounts up to 50% off. Leave the mall crowds behind this Black Friday and stock up on all your favorite functional mushroom products from the comfort of your own home. Whether you're looking to chill out, rest up, or feel energized, there's a mushroom blend for you and just about everyone on your list. To get these savings, head to foursigmatic.com and use discount code WGYT or follow the link in the show notes. Today, what got you there is being fueled by Soniva Super Coffee. Soniva provides an organic bottled coffee blended with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil for all-day energy. Grab a bottle at your local Whole Foods market or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Distilled utilizes the same fabrics, factories, and wash houses as the best-known brands and designers while skipping the markups and middlemen. The result? 
top quality denim without the retail runaround. Just go to dstld.com and see where minimalist design meets maximum comfort. They have a 100% fit guarantee, offering free shipping and returns until you find the perfect pair. Inspired by the creative class, Distilled is the perfect brand for those who have other things to think about besides getting dressed. You'll look good no matter what with Distilled. Distilled has been featured in Forbes, Time, and TechCrunch, as well as on denim-clad celebrities in GQ and Men's Health. You can find the brand's amazing selection of outwear, leather jackets, t-shirts, and more using the same principles of high-grade materials at low-end cost. Distilled is your answer to elevated style without elevated prices. Just go to dstld.com right now and use the promo code JOURNEY10 in all caps at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Who are some of the all-time great leaders you've worked with? Oh, well, I mean, the list is incredibly long. I've been fortunate. Uh, It's much easier to list the the people that I thought were horrible leaders, but I won't do that. Um, Anyone come to front of mind here? Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> so I think of, uh, you know, the best leader I ever worked for was Stan McChrystal, um, an absolutely amazing guy who just got the best out of his people, was always honest, incredibly demanding, but in a very positive way. Um, along with him, I think of, you know, Tom Snookus, Dan Allen, Rich Clark, um, Craig Nixon. Uh, I mean, just, you know, just amazing uh, R.J. Lillibridge, just great guys. And then, you know, even today, I get to work with a guy who I think is a great leader, um, Jim Stagnita, who, you know, a lacrosse coach for 30 years, um, you know, one of the youngest, you know, Division One lacrosse coaches ever. And uh, I, I learned from him now. Um, so so I am truly, truly fortunate that uh, that I get to uh, work with leaders all that I think are, are really, really talented, you know, um, and, and the guys that I work with, I mean, Dave Petromala, you know, Ron Rivera, those guys are, those guys are amazing leaders. They're amazing at what they do. Um, I'm just honored, um, and quite humbled that, that every once in a while they think I have a good idea. <laughs> so when, when you're thinking of these great leaders, what stands out? You mentioned some of these names. Is, is there particular attributes that stand out for each one of these guys that you say, without a doubt, makes this guy a great leader? Yeah, the, the, the biggest thing I can tell you is that for all the guys I just mentioned, their people come first. It's all about their people. It's not about what the outcome is. Right? It's not that they don't want to win a national championship or want to you know, destroy the enemy or whatever, whatever their mission is, but they think it starts with the people and taking care of their people. Um, and they're, it's people above everything, which is you know, something that, that I talk about in my book and something that you know, McChrystal says in the introduction is in, in today when technology has become so important um, and and end states, you know, outcomes, and not just the outcome, but the process to the outcome have, have really just, you know, become so important to leaders. Um, I, I just, those guys always struck me because they were, I never doubted that the outcome was important to them. I never doubted their commitment to the outcome, but it wasn't all about the outcome. It was about the people and they were, they trusted that their people would get them to the outcome. Do you believe anyone's capable of being a great leader? Yes, I do. Why do you answer that way? Because I think that um, that everybody has the capacity to lead others because they know how they feel. And if they can start to be a little bit, if they can develop some empathy, which is what, you know, which is a, a key characteristic of great leaders, that they can start thinking about their people instead of the task. And, and that's some, for some people, it's a tougher mind shift for others. But I think that if, if you can do that, you're going to be a great leader. Uh, and I truly believe that. Now, is it easier to build great leaders in like adolescence? Yes, it is. Uh, is it, is it difficult to take, you know, uh, a 50 year old person and make them a great leader if they haven't been? Uh, it is, but I have, all sorts of experiences where I've seen guys make a, a huge shift in their leadership style and move towards people first 
and completely change uh, how they did things and become absolutely phenomenal leaders. Any recommendations for parents with with young kids? You mentioned the adolescents, and are there little things they can be doing to help their children become better leaders? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, one of the books I'm working on is kind of a how to lead your child, kind of a child raising book. Awesome. I feel like there's not enough of those out there. So I'm, I'm very interested. Once you do uh, release that, I'll have to check that one out. Well, it's, it's funny. I'm sure everybody wants some army ranger to be telling them how to raise their kid. But, <laughs> you know, I think, I think it's about, you know, we have a tendency to lead our children or to raise our children in a very draconian way, in a way that we would, that we know is not good to lead people. For example, do this because I told you to. Uh, we don't like to explain stuff. Even when we have time, we don't allow them to fail uh, for one of two reasons. Either it hurts us as people, you know, as parents, because we love our kids, or it creates work for us. So I want to give you an example. Um, my youngest son, uh, who's, gonna, who's about to be 13 in like a week, um, he was young. Uh, he was little. Um, and you know, he comes in the kitchen and I'm watching him and he goes, he goes to the counter, he climbs up on the counter, he pulls down a glass. Um, he goes to the refrigerator, he pulls out a almost full gallon of milk. Um, and then, you know, situates his stool next to the counter and he's, you know, getting ready. I go, Hey, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going to pour myself a glass of milk. He said, Oh, all right. Now as a parent. I absolutely knew that he was going to spill milk all over the place. And it would have been very easy for me to say, let me do that for you. And I would have saved myself some time. But I stopped myself and I go, all right. And I I watched him spill milk all over the counter and the floor. And I said, all right, buddy, well, let's clean that up. And we cleaned it up. And I said, tell me something. If, If that didn't work so well. So what do you think, what, what's another way you could do it? He looks at me and he goes, well, I could pour it into a bigger glass, something that had a wider top. And I went, okay, not a bad answer. I like that. What's another way you could do it? And he goes, well, we could put milk in a smaller container for me so that I could pour it easily. He said, I like that. Why don't we do that? Because that seems like it would last a lot longer. That conversation, you know, other than the, the two minutes of the conversation and the four minutes of cleaning up the milk allowed my son to solve a problem and allowed him to start thinking about what he was doing instead of just doing it or waiting for me to do it. And, and I don't think, you know, that's what we do. You know, as, as leaders, I talk about, hey, we have to celebrate failure and we have to allow failure to happen. Um, and we have to be there to support our people when they do fail. But when they fail and they come up with the answers, it, it's their answer. Um, and I would have been hindering his development, you know, had I poured it to him. Uh, I would have been hindering not just his development of pouring milk, but hindering his development and problem solving and thinking. And we wouldn't have had that conversation. And, and the only thing that would have been easier is I wouldn't have had to clean up milk. I mean, that takes a great deal of patience. Did you have those patients prior to having kids? Uh, no, I don't think I did. I think, um, I don't even know that, um, even my, you know, I've learned, I've learned being a parent and I've learned being a leader, you know, and, and, and it's, it's an interesting question that my kids were probably, I don't know, one was probably 11, one was probably seven. When I finally started realizing maybe I should, I should raise my children the way I think you're supposed to lead. Um, because I, I finally realized, yeah, I am really very, I'm draconian with my kids. Hey, do this. Hey, I want you to go do this. And I would never do that with my Rangers, with my soldiers. I just wouldn't do that. Um, and I, I think it's really important that we don't do that. So if I'm not going to do that, um, with the people who I work with, why would I do that to the people that, you know, I have a a truly a vested interest. Not that I didn't have a vested interest in my in my soldiers and my rangers, but you know, why wouldn't I lead them the same way? And so, my daughter who's in college, she's about to she'll be twenty one this spring. Um, I have a seventeen year old son; he'll be eighteen in December. And 
you know, they've never had a curfew, none of them. And the, it becomes, hey, we're going out tonight. Okay, what time are you going to come home? Well, I'm going to come home at this time. If I think it's too late, I go, tell me what you're doing. Tell me what that time span looks like that you've got to be out to that time. And I can only think of one time um, since they've kind of been young adults that I've actually said no about something and, and I couldn't give them a reason, but I said, you know, I'm just, I'm really uncomfortable with this and uh, I can't give you a good reason because it doesn't even completely make sense, but just my gut says I don't like this. And my son's like, okay, because he knows that nine times out of 10, I'm going to give him a reason why I don't want him to do something or something's a bad idea, or I'm going to let him figure it out. Oh, that's an interesting approach. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because my parents actually did the exact same thing with me, not having a curfew and that the trust level that built between us, I think went a long way. What, what made you do that with your kids? Um, I trust my kids. Gotcha. You know, and I believe that, um, I, I actually even do, a, I have a little, little video clip on YouTube, but I, I talk about it a little bit in the book. I believe trust is given. I don't believe trust has to be earned. Trust may have to be earned back, but bottom line is it's given. And if, if we give our, our trust to strangers every day, right? I got on an airplane today um, and I don't know my pilot's name. I don't know how old he is. I don't know. I, I know it was a guy. That's the only thing I know because I saw him when I got on and off. But um, I, I don't know if he's got a drinking problem. I don't know if he's having problems with his wife. Uh, or his partner. I, I don't know any of that, but I trust him. Um, I, I trust the doctor when I go in the emergency room. I don't say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I know I'm bleeding profusely or I'm in a lot of pain, but where'd you go to medical school? And uh, what were your grades like? And how long have you been practicing? I just trust him. And even when I, you know, drove from the airport back to the house, you know, I don't know everybody who's, who's on the, who's on the road and they're driving 4,000 pound vehicles that can kill me at 15 miles an hour and i trust that they're going to do the right thing in fact i know i trust them because i get angry when they when they violate the rules right when they cut me off i get ticked you know why i get ticked because i trust them if i didn't trust them i'd be like of course you you violated the rules i don't trust you i wouldn't be surprised but if i'm if i'm going to trust strangers with my very life every day why wouldn't i trust the people who are closest to me Hmm. That's just such a profound, I'm really pondering that and thinking about that. What happens if you have someone close in your life that you don't fully trust? What do you do about that situation? So I think that, you know, and you're saying that, you know, over time, trust has deteriorated. Somebody has done something that has violated my trust and now I'm uncomfortable with the relationship. Correct. Yep. It's a really good question. And for me, it's about being curious together and having a discussion on and being transparent, which is something humans are not very good at for whatever reason, because we want to tell everybody what we're thinking, but it's funny. We hold a lot of stuff in because we're afraid of hurting people's feelings or saying something that seems judgy or, and, and I don't want to judge anybody. What I do is, and I think it's something that, that, you know, my company at Kenning and, you know, the, the company and the partners that, we talk about a lot, which is when this happened, I felt this way because of this. How do you see it? And how do we work together to build trust back again? You know, so being very, very, very clear in the when I feel because, and then looking at it as a joint endeavor to how do we do something that builds this trust back I mean, something you mentioned earlier was failure. I'm, I'm curious, how do you handle failure personally? And then also, what can people running a sports team or running a company, what can they do when uh, their teammates or employees make mistakes? So I, I think, so how do I, I, I'll tell you, I don't handle personal mistakes very well. I get very frustrated. And Is that because you're so hard on yourself? You know, there's so much arrogance in that, uh, right? So, because I'm a guy who, Everybody around me can make mistakes and I go, oh, hey, that happens. You know, in fact, I'll be like, whoa, that was a huge mistake. Let's not do that again. Uh, you know, what would you do differently? Um, I think I just um, don't, uh, you know, so to be, again, transparent, this is, this is 
probably nobody on podcasts says stuff like this, but I don't have the best self-esteem. And so I just think when I make a mistake, I'm stupid. Um, and, and, and I should know better and I'm, and I'm kind of dumb. Um, I see other people's mistakes as, oh man, you know, that's just a mistake and that could happen to anybody. Uh, it's because there is a, there is an idea like, Hey, I'm really hard on myself, but there's a certain amount of, um, arrogance in that. If you think about it, like I expect more out of myself than anybody else. And and that's not what it is for me. It's, geez, I'm dumb. Of course I make mistakes. And Oh no, those are just mistakes. I can tell you, I'm really good when my kids make mistakes. Uh, when my people make mistakes, they think I just look at it and go, you know, as long as it's not a mistake born of negligence, meaning, Hey, why'd you get a D on this paper? Well, I didn't really spend any time on it. All right. Well, that that's not okay. You know, I mean, not doing what you're supposed to do, you know, but if, if somebody says, you know, I studied really hard, but maybe I just studied the wrong stuff. All right. Fair enough. You, did you get, did you figure something out from it? Um, what I think that leaders have to do in businesses or, or teams is first of all, you know, so teams, it's a little bit easier, right? Cause you can make mistakes in practice though. Some coaches forget you can make mistakes in practice and I have a tendency to do whether it's in practice or in a game is the first thing I ask is what happened out there for you? What did you see? Cause I've seen, I've seen coaches, you know, coaching, um, you know, multi-million dollar receivers and a receiver will miss a, miss a catch. And I'll, I'll hear the coach start to explain the basic fundamentals of catching a ball. And they go, yeah, I'm pretty sure that guy knows how to catch a ball. Yeah, I'm sure he does. <laughs> and, and even let's think about, you know, high school lacrosse coaches um, or high school football coaches. We're very quick to start saying, oh, you know, you're throwing sidearm or you're throwing, as opposed to, hey, what did you see? What made you make the decision that you made that brought us to that outcome? Okay, what would you have done differently? And, and then deciding when, when do I help them and tell them, okay, well, this is kind of what I saw. I saw you throw sidearm. Um, I would much rather have the kid go, you know, coach, I threw sidearm. I, as soon as I released, I knew it was, I knew I was wrong and I knew I was off cage. All right, man. Then, then you know what you have to do. Um, repetitive mistakes are not acceptable. You know, if I, if I'm making the same mistake five or six times, Hey, that, that's not okay. Cause that starts to run into negligence, but mistakes not born in negligence. I think we not only have to underwrite, but we have to go like, that was awesome that you tried something. It didn't work. What can we try now? Are you big on goal setting? Yeah. So I'm big on, on figuring out what outcomes I desire. I think that's really important. And I think that um, for coaches, I talk, and for leaders, I talk a lot about building intent. So intent for, you know, a football team may be, hey, we're going to hold this team to under 100 yards rushing. Um, for a, um, for maybe a business, hey, we're going to grow uh, X percent, uh, this quarter. Um, but I think those are intent things and then allowing people to kind of figure out how they're going to get to that outcome and being able to track. And, and, but the important things about outcome is, especially in business, I think it's the same in sports is being able to understand that the environment changes very, very quickly. And sometimes the outcome that were right, you know, a couple of weeks ago changed they're not effective anymore. And we have to relook our outcomes. We get so focused on outcomes um, that we miss kind of, well, you know, a uh, hundred yards ain't going to cut it this week or a growing by this percentage this quarter is not possible because the economy's down. Let's relook at this. And we seem like, well, that changes our, our goal. Yeah, but why wouldn't you change your goal? I mean, it's when we fail to change that we don't progress. And to look at ourselves and say, you know, we're mind readers or we're fortune tellers and we can look so far into the future. The only thing that companies or teams tend to prepare their people for is what today is. And the problem is nobody's preparing them for what tomorrow looks like. And we've, we've got to do a better job of that. I feel like there's so much pressure a lot of time around goals. How do you teach your clients to do a better job handling pressure? So, so the resiliency piece is really, is really important to me. 
one of my greatest friends and also a guy who I consider a genius, a guy named Tony Blauer. Yeah, Tony's been on this podcast before. Tony's Has a great guy. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, man, I'm in good company. Um, he's probably one of my closest friends, and I haven't been on his podcast. So, um, and I'm going to say that now because I hope he hears that. <laughs> well, we'll definitely let him know. <laughs> uh, so, I use a lot of Tony's stuff, to be honest with you, on his uh, fear loop on uh, possible versus probable. In fact, a lot of my leadership stuff has come from um, from a lot of Tony's stuff, and I, I, I give credit to Tony in the book about. I think the main thing a leader has to do is uh, create courage in their people, um, courage to overcome fear. Because when you think about anything that you've never, things that you haven't done, you've chosen not to do them because you're afraid. It's it's almost fear stops people from acting, from from thinking a certain way, from doing a certain thing, from meeting their goals. It's fear. And what leaders have to do instead of worrying about the specific task uh, is, is focus on reducing fear. And fear is a constant because obviously you can't have courage without fear because doing some, you know, ha- not having fear means you're crazy. So um, you, you've got to have the fear to have courage. And so I, I believe heavily that you've got to convince people, look, hey, what's possible? What's probable? You've got to start figuring out ways to give them courage to meet their goals. Um, We have a bad tendency to, you know, I hear it all the time. Well, you were in the military. You prepared for the worst case scenario. No, we didn't. We we didn't at all. We prepared for the most likely scenario. And at worst, we prepared for the most dangerous scenario. But it was never like, well, they dropped nukes. You know, that's, that's, you know, the most dangerous scenario. Um, We would look at what was most likely to happen. And we prepared for what was likely because if you try to prepare for every possible thing, you're, you know, you're going to fail. Tony does this great, he does this great exercise where he talks about possible versus probable about going into a a bar fight, all the things that could come out of a bar fight. And if you look at the end of talking to people for like five minutes, there's like a hundred things that could happen in a bar fight. You get stabbed, you get shot, you lose your job, you get hit with a pool cue, hit with a chair. Oh, they're all possible. And if you looked at that list, you'd be like, I'm never going into a bar again. This is crazy. Hmm. But then he goes, okay, what's probable? And it's like, ah, I get tackled or I get sucker punched. Yeah, that's two things. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. I can prepare for those two things. Um, and so I think that the way we have to build resiliency is we have to do that little mental exercise of possible versus probable. What's the worst thing that happens if, if this is what we do? Um. And, you know, probably what's the worst thing, not what's, what's the possible worst thing, what's the probable worst thing. And then being willing to say, okay, I'm willing to accept risk here. And if it doesn't work out, it's still a success because I just learned what didn't work. Yeah. Possible versus probable. That's something Tony taught me and implementing that in your life, I think just does unbelievable things for, for helping you understand certain situations and and see a different perspective on that. So, I mean, you're learning from guys like Tony, who are some other thought leaders you're learning from today and what are they teaching you? Hmm. Thought leaders today. I don't know that I look at a whole lot of contemporary guys. I mean, obviously, you know, Simon Sulik and, and those guys are, are interesting to watch. And, and I, and I think, They've got some interesting perspectives. What I try to do is I try to take the physiology of the brain and the physiology of how we, and, and, and so the mind-brain connection. Um, and then I try to take some philosophy of what makes sense uh, for people. And I try to combine that. And then I look kind of at past great people who we could consider thought leaders, you know, and, and how did they see the world? Um, and, and I'm talking, you know, everybody from Lao Tzu to Albert Einstein, um, you know, I wish, you know, I, you know, I'll tell you what, um, I really like, uh, Frankel, you know, man's search mm-hmm. for meaning. Um, I like, I think Dob Seidman, uh, you know, has, has some, has some great, you know, thoughts on culture. Uh, Lawrence Gonzalez, deep survival, um, those, those are guys that I certainly appreciate, but I think I'm, I'm always still looking not to necessarily be 
influenced by those guys as much as I am to say, okay, what are they doing? What is their track? Okay, this must be kind of where people are going. What do I think about that? Um, and I really think that the that the innovation stuff is really it's really important. I, I try to create um, new intellectual property every six months. Can you can you go expand upon that? I mean, I'm I'm always curious about new research and how people are changing certain things they do based on that new research. So can you talk more about that? Yeah. So so um, and it goes back with you know the books that I choose. I, I don't read any fiction. It's just not it's not my thing. Um, you know, unless it's something like uh, Ender's Game, uh, which I think is an incredible book about development and how to look at development and innovation, um, or or something like that, where there's where I think there's a, a larger piece. You know, I I don't I will watch plenty of Mind Candy in the movies and on television, but I won't read I won't read Mind Candy. Um, I, I think it has to do with um, you know I'll read a lot of stuff. And then I, I reflect on kind of my experiences. And then um, I do read a lot of books about how the brain works in psychology. Um, and then, you know, eventually stuff just kind of comes to me and I'll look it up. So, for instance, I'm working on some new stuff right now on how to um, build resiliency in athletes and how to make them more adaptive. And I'm finding it'll work for more than just athletes. But so in that, it started with the book Deep Survival. And a lot of the research he did in that and looking at his footnotes and kind of kind of looking at, at the, the data that came out of there and going, oh, all right, well, if this is how the brain works, what would, you know, what was striking to me is as, as a military guy, um, if I came into a shoot house uh, and I had a target, I would shoot the first time I'd miss. Uh, well, I don't usually miss, so that's an anomaly. So I shoot the second time do everything the same way I shoot the second time. If I miss the second time, I immediately started to adapt. Maybe I changed, you know, my angle. Maybe I changed my sight picture. I, I started to adapt. What I was watching is athletes would, you know, throw an interception or throw an incomplete pass. Also an anomaly, something that doesn't usually happen if they're at that elite level. And they would immediately react by like, you know, throwing their helmet down or unsnapping their chin strap, you know, and I, I went, okay, so if I miss a shot, I don't throw my weapon down. So what's different if we're both at the elite levels of what we do, what's different in the mindset? So that was kind of what got me started on figuring out, okay, so how do you change it? And then based on what I understood the brain did and what I understood that we were kind of taught to do and how we, how we looked at it, it was outcome oriented. And being able to look at mistakes as anomalies as opposed to failures. And then understanding instead of going through multiple cycles of what ends up happening, you know, so physiologically what we do is we have a mental model of what it's supposed to look like. We fail to meet the mental model the first time. So what do we do? We try harder. Well, naturally, when you try harder, you actually are screwing up the system of how you do the thing that you do all the time. And so we screw it up again. We make a mistake again. And then we try harder. And we'll do this cycle like five times before we actually even think about adapting. And less than 50% of the people will even think about adapting, changing their mental model. So with that information, just being a leader or a coach and being able to tell your people, okay, you made one mistake. No big deal. You don't usually make mistakes. Forget about it. Let's keep going. You know, if there's something to learn from it, great. If there isn't, let's move on. You, you don't usually make mistakes. Hey, I made a mistake the second time. You know what? What I've done previously doesn't work here. So I immediately have to abandon my mental model and start looking at a new way to do this. Oh, I love how you're approaching that problem. And you can definitely see how your five book rotation really feeds into all these things. I'm curious, you mentioned a few people back in history and you mentioned some current um, world-class coaches and teams. If you could work with anyone, any organization, any team, any individual, who would it be? Ooh, to help them or to, or to learn from? Let's do two part, learn from okay. and to help them. So I think working with Johnny Football would have been awesome, right? Wow, I would love to see that. I think that would have been an an incredible, uh, an incredible experience. Um, 
because I, I have empathy for him. I think that he's he hasn't had a tough life, but the life that he has has not been developmentally sound. And and I get it. So we're asking a guy to to do certain things with zero training, and it's not fair. And so I, I, I feel for him a little bit. He's a hard guy to feel sorry for, um, but but I feel for him. Like he hasn't he he obviously you know didn't take the opportunity or maybe never got the opportunity. You know, he had coaches who let him do what he wanted to do um, and behave in a certain way. And he, he had a whole bunch of enablers. So I think that would be really rewarding. If I could learn from, I'll tell you who I would learn from. Uh, I would love, I would love to work with um, Laird Hamilton and his team. Um, he's, doing, he's doing some really neat stuff um, with, you know, longevity and fitness and thought process. And I just think that he's probably on the cutting edge of some really good stuff uh, that I can absolutely see the, you know, the making the world better um, as far as, you know, making individuals better to do more things for others. Um, I, I would work with him and his team in a heartbeat. Yeah, Laird is probably one of the people I most closely follow. I, I know we've had on Brian McKenzie, who's his partner in the XPT training and what they do with breathwork. And this stuff they have going on is absolutely fascinating. So two awesome answers there. I mean, JC, this has been absolutely incredible. I know you kind of hit on your book, A Light in the Darkness, Leadership Development for the Unknown. You mentioned you've got three more books that you're working on. Where can the listeners stay connected with you? How can they make sure they're getting all these updates that you're providing? Yeah, so... Um I'm working on that, but I, I am on Twitter at uh, jc.glick. Um, my, uh, my book is on Amazon, and um, you can always reach me on my, uh, my company's website. It's kenningassociates.com, but if you just type in the Google search bar, Kenning Associates, it'll come up, and it, it talks a little bit about what we do, and I'm also on LinkedIn. And I do publish some stuff that is not necessarily my business stuff. Like I, I recently published a, an article on the kneeling issue in the NFL. And I've published some stuff on, on veteran issues that, that wouldn't necessarily go to my business, but I thought was important. And I published that on LinkedIn. Great. Well, we'll definitely get all of that linked up in the show notes, help these listeners stay connected with you. But JC, thank you so much for joining us on What Got You There? Sean, thanks so much. It was uh, it was really a pleasure, and and I really I, I love the questions. Thank you so much. With Black Friday at the end of this week, our friends at Four Sigmatic have some unbelievable deals for you. From Friday, November twenty fourth to Tuesday, November twenty eighth, they're offering huge discounts up to fifty percent off. Leave the mall crowds behind this Black Friday and stock up on all your favorite functional mushroom products from the comfort of your own home. Whether you're looking to chill out, rest up, or feel energized, there's a mushroom blend for you and just about everyone on your list. To get these savings, head to foursigmatic.com and use discount code WGYT or follow the link in the show notes. If you're looking for a way to stay energized throughout the entire day, grab a bottle of Suniva Super Coffee. Suniva is something I drink on a daily basis. It's an organic bottled coffee blend with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil, which provides me with clean, all-day energy. Head to your local Whole Foods or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Suniva was founded by three college athletes who are brothers and wanted the cleaner way to stay energized throughout the entire day. Let's face it, we all want to look good in the clothes we wear, but I got tired of sifting through the racks looking for a quality pair of jeans that cost less than $300. Then I found Distilled. D-S-T-L-D, pronounced Distilled, offers premium denim and essentials at an affordable price. Their products cost just one-third of what other premium brands charge because Distilled refuses to work with middlemen, bringing savings directly to you. Just go to dstld.com right now and use the promo code JOURNEY10 in all caps at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? 
Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.